Hello, and welcome to No Man's Land podcast. I'm Martin Rogers. I'm here with Steve O'Neill. Hi, Martin. Akash Pound. Hi there. And our very special guest, Professor Eric Kaufman from Birkbeck. Welcome, Eric. Thanks, Martin. So we're here to talk about immigration. Debates over immigration have taken quite an odd place within politics. On the one hand, the public consistently rank as one of the most important issues facing the nation. But those who are politically engaged, politicians and activists, have historically been reluctant to engage with the issue. Now we're starting to see a new immigration system emerge after Brexit. seems a good time to discuss what a moderate approach to immigration should be. We're delighted that our special guest, Eric Kaufman, is here to discuss this most vexing topic. And this is an issue which, as well, does not clearly fit within the sort of traditional left-right axis, as is usually understood. And there's a very useful YouGov article on this by Matthew Smith from August 2019. Steve, immigration is good for the economy. People should just stop whinging and get on with it, shouldn't they? Well, yes, as you say, uh, the sort of expert consensus tends to be that migration is good for the economy and the negative impacts are quite small. So I thought I'd give you a few illustrative examples of the kind of things you might hear written and said about this. So, for example, European migrants pay more into the tax system than they take out in benefits or other state spending. Um, also, the, any effects on employment or wages, they're very debated, but they're, even where they're debated, they're very small. So the idea that migration depresses average wages, it's, I had a look earlier, and we're talking about figures between 1% or 0.5%, the kind of things I'm seeing. Um, third example would be around, say, house prices. Um, again, if, if, they push, if migration pushes up house prices or housing costs, it's a very small amount. Um, so, as you, as you say, yes, sometimes the context of conversations is, all these negative things people talk about, there isn't much evidence for them. Just get on with it. However, what I would say is that macro stuff like that is not going to be convincing to people who have local areas and local concerns. Um, and so I, I suspect telling people to stop whining isn't going to work. And in fact, it, I think it's proven not to work on this debate. I mean, it, the, the approach to those who are more favorable to a particularly liberal immigration system will tend to use some of the arguments that you've just uh, sort of touched on there. But I think it can be quite naive to assume that all people and all sectors are affected in the same way. So, for example, the Bank of England Working Paper, number 574, from December 2015, states, and I quote, the biggest impact of immigration on wages is within the semi and unskilled services occupational group. Now, there's also another issue that isn't talked about enough, I think, is whether or not it's good or indeed right to basically import people and rely on them in the way that we do, depriving poorer countries of some very able people so that we over here can have our cheap labour. But Eric, some people say there's more to it than just the economy. Um, so why has immigration become such an important issue across the whole of the West? Well, yeah, very much in terms of public opinion. Um, the research, I think, clearly shows now that this is really not primarily about economics. In fact, it's almost the case that personal economic circumstances across the large number of studies at the individual level really don't show uh, much of a correlation at all. It really comes down very much to psychological and cultural factors. So if you're trying to predict who is going to be opposed and to immigration, want it reduced, and who's going to be supportive and wanting it 
increased, you want to know things like what are people's views on the death penalty? What is their view on a question like things in Britain or America were better in the past? You might even want to know, do they go to the same place on holiday? Innocuous things like that. So it's these sort of deeper psychological uh, values that really predict a person's views on immigration and the economics, how rich or poor they are, whether they've just lost their job really doesn't make much difference. Now, what's, what, what's occurring, of course, with the kind of ethno-demographic shifts that we're seeing in the West? United States, for example, will become so-called majority-minority around 2050, and it's under five population already is. I'm, of course, including Hispanics in that non-white category, which, of course, we can have a discussion about. But it's in that kind of a context that the ethnocultural issues, which ultimately underpin a lot of the immigration debate, are becoming more important. And so the politics of Western countries is realigning so that the old left-right economic questions are being overshadowed to a, to a greater and greater extent by this sort of open, closed, or globalist nationalist, whatever you want to call it, cultural dimension. We saw that in the last uh, UK election. We saw it also in with Trump. The class composition of the Tory party or of the Republican party has shifted dramatically because class no longer is the defining issue. And so the two parties look pretty similar class-wise, but in terms of attitudes, they are very, very dissimilar. Steve? Um, yeah, so uh, thinking about the migration issue, I, when I worked back in my time in working politics, um, a lot of the work I was presented with focus groups and polls and things like that tended to say a good chunk of the people saying they were concerned about immigration were citing things like I mentioned a minute ago, like NHS waiting times or house prices and the rest. Um, so my assumption always was that that was driving a lot of concern. So the stuff I was looking at was saying something like two out of three people that were anti-immigration were saying that kind of thing. So from what you're saying, is it should I be starting to think that actually, yes, they're saying those things in those groups, but there's other concerns than a more cultural line beneath it? Yeah, I think essentially, yes. So, I mean, there are kind of experiments that have been done, for example, planting on a Boston subway train, a bunch of people who's speaking Spanish and, and then interviewing individuals. And you could see, and they, this was Ryan Enos at Harvard showed that that actually changed people's immigration attitudes, right? And, and, and often, so you can ask a question to leave voters, for example, how big a problem is pressure on public services? Zero, not at all, 100, very important, and you'll get about a 48, 49. So it's a moderate issue for them. But if you say immigrants putting pressure on public services, how big a pr problem is that? It's a 70. Now, if you think about that question, there's no way that the portion of the pressure on public services accounted for by immigrants can be larger than the problem of pressure on public services. And there have been other experiments that kind of show that it's attitudes of immigration are prior to a lot of the views on these concrete public services or pressure on jobs questions. So I don't think it's the economic factors that are doing the work in explaining the attitudes. Akash? Yeah, I mean, my, my take on it, and interested in, in your uh, response, Eric, and, and, and other guys, is that, I mean, there was a period a few years ago, um, sort of particularly around sort of 2014, 2015, the period when we saw the rise of UKIP, the run-up to the, uh, the EU referendum, when the public opinion surveys really do show that immigration was one of, or even the top, um, issue um, of, 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 of concern to voters, 
Um, but when you follow that, at least in the, the Ipsos Mori uh, data, the issues index, I mean, you can see it has, it has dramatically fallen away uh, since 2016, even though, of course, nothing yet has changed in terms of the immigration system or the right of uh, people from, from the rest of the EU to, to come to the UK. So I do think that what that speaks to is that there was a sense that there'd been a, uh, a, a degree of change um, in, in uh, the, the composition of the British population, a level of immigration after 2004 that was unprecedented, that people felt they hadn't been consulted about, maybe even had been lied about, you know, to the extent that the, the government um, forecasts uh, of how many people would, would come from the east of Europe were completely wrong. Um, and there was this sense, therefore, of... of um, having lost control of the borders. I mean, that's, you know, famously the, the, the famous Brexit slogan that really tapped into, I think, people's underlying concerns. But now that the, the referendum, has, of course, was won by the Brexit side, we are out of the EU, something's going to happen. We're going to have a new system that kind of ends the, the different treatment of EU citizens from the rest of the world. But maybe the level of immigration isn't going to change that much. And it might be that voters don't actually care that much about it because there is this sense of um, the problem has been recognised and now the country is in control again. Yeah, and that's absolutely right. And, and so the question is why the data, there's two things. One's the attitudes. Do you, Let's say, do you want immigration reduced or increased? But the other one is is the salience or the priority. How many people are saying this is the most important issue facing the country? What we see on the, the attitude side is a sort of increasing widening split between leavers and remainers. So that now, essentially, lever attitudes have, if anything, gotten the same or a little bit more restrictive. But basically, about 90% want reduction. But on the remain side, you've seen significant liberalization. So there's now, it, would, it was closer to 70%, say, in 2010. Or 2015, and it's now at um, sort of 50%, so wanting a reduction. So there's been a considerable liberalization, but only on one side of, of, of the line, if you like. And I think part of that is Remainers being cued by politicians and parties and becoming more liberal. Uh, but the other part of this, of course, is for the levers, the salience level has dropped, partly because a lot of them believe that numbers are going to drop once there is control. Now, if Numbers do not drop, and I've, I've sort of this is sort of my view, and I could well be wrong, but I kind of think if the numbers don't drop once uh, the government puts in its new controls, this discourse of you know a million people every three years and importing a city, that kind of thing, I think is going to be back. We've already seen it a little bit in, you know, Duncan Smith had an editorial, and I think that Boris's coalition is kind of an uneasy uh, union between the Brexiteer elite, which is kind of global Britain and much more pro-migration, and then the support base, which is much more about reduction. And I think the big question is really going to be when we're going to see this coalition start to have a rift and whether a new force such as a Brexit party or a UKIP or somebody on that side is going to eat into the Tory vote on this issue. But it, again, right now, of course, when Boris is out fighting for Britain for a better deal, making Brexit work, Brexit, because Brexit's gone up, it's displaced immigration in terms of a concern. So in, when you're looking at most important issues, when there are other issues like an economic recession or Brexit that move up, then other issues drop down. And I think it's in that context 
uh, that the immigration issue has become less of a priority. However, once Brexit is sorted, if, if it is a success and the economy doesn't tank, then people will breathe a sigh of relief. Okay, we'll put that in the bag. Then what happens? What is the issue that's going to replace Brexit in the news for the Brexit voter? And that's where I would, just looking around the world, again, you mentioned, you know, if you look at Europe, again, you can see this relationship between, as in Britain, rising migration numbers, rising salience, that is more voters saying immigration is their number one priority. And then once the migration numbers come down, the salience also comes down. So there's this relationship, which I think is not one-to-one -one and it's mediated by many things, but I think it's an important relationship. But in terms of the numbers, I mean, don't, yeah. don't you think there's a, at least a possibility that assuming we get some version of the proposed point-based system uh, in which EU citizens, you know, will have to jump through the same hoops, so to speak, as people from the rest of the world. Even if that system ends up letting in a similar number um, to, you know, the numbers who've been coming in in the last few years, the government will be able to say, we have taken back control, we are now only letting in people who have the right qualifications, have the necessary skills, the things we need in this country. And I just feel that might be quite a, a different kind of uh, debate than the, the one we've had in, 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 in the past few years, where it's all been about, as I said before, you know, we have no control over this, millions have come in and, 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 and any other, any number of million more people could come and we'd have no say about it. So I just wonder if it really is about the numbers. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. It's not exactly the same debate because there is this control dimension and there's a skill. Obviously, if there's a higher skill component to the new migration, then people will be pleased about that as well. But I think I really don't think, and again, this is looking at what's been happening in, in other countries. And if we take, say, New Zealand or Canada or Australia, what we're seeing is the same sorts of rifts uh, partisan polarization on the issue of immigration. So in Canada, for example, partisan polarization between liberal or left voters and conservative voters was, there might have been 10, 15 points difference on the immigration question five, six years ago, and it's now 50 points. You see in New Zealand, for example, where there was an election, uh, and also in the province of Quebec in Canada. Now, these are all countries there where they have pretty tight control over the numbers. It tend tends to be skilled immigration, but the discourse is slightly different. It's about pressure on, you know, it's about house prices or population pressure or social cohesion. So instead of talking about worries about lack of control. It's, it's a slightly different. Now, I, I think there will be an adjustment period where people are going to say, okay, well, immigration is, they're, they're middle class, they're educated, they're, you know, they're, they're, it's under control. That will certainly be important, but I also think ultimately that these other things, which we've seen in other countries around volume and around a different narrative will, will emerge. I can't say, I wouldn't be able to say put my finger here and say exactly in this crystal ball when. Is it going to be two years six months, five years, but I do think it will emerge. That would be my, yeah. There is some polling, which unfortunately I haven't got to hand, that looks at, or looked at the sort of more liberal attitudes towards immigration, supposedly in the last few years. And what was good was when it was broken down by Lever and Remainer. Leavers say that they're less bothered about immigration because they expect greater control to be forthcoming. 
Remainers say that they're less bothered about immigration because more people have been making the case for why it's a good thing. And the, whilst the headline numbers is that number one is people are less bothered about immigration because more people have been making the case, or I think it was phrased that they're now more aware of the positive contribution that immigrants make. Actually, that was vast majority of those uh, remainers, sorry, and the vast majority of leavers reported they were less concerned because they were expecting greater control. So there's a danger, again, that this is sort of another way of the public being sort of polarised between these two almost competing sort of interpretations. But I thought something that could add is that we... We kind of almost assume that there's a sort of a fixed picture, and I think we underplay how dynamic this political issue can be going forward. That you can have down the line, let's say 10, 15, 20 years, it's by no means inconceivable that you could have a, um, a liberal or conservative stance on immigration being one of the centrepieces of the political parties, that a... a Nigel Farage is, I think, often more um, sort of comprehensive than he's given credit for and has made the argument that it's not just about economic growth at all costs, that there is a, a, um, a benefit to saying we will forgo a certain amount of economic growth for a reduced immigration, greater cohesion, you know, some of these sorts of things. So whether that might be a position that political party takes is we're willing to take the economic hit if there is one, which there may or may not be, but even if there is, we will take that hit because we believe that the greater good is served by a more cohesive society, less change, you know, these sorts of things that people talk about, less pressure on public services, these sorts of things that people talk about. Well, you see that in the survey data very much on leave, on Brexit, that Brexit voters are were in a survey that I did with um, uh, Tom Hick, or with uh, Thomas Leeper and Simon Hicks at LSE, I mean, we could see that um, leavers were willing to take a fair bit of economic pain, you know, to 5% of income, for example, in some cases, um, to reduce immigration in a way that, say, anti-immigration remainers were not willing to make that economic sacrifice to the same extent. So I think definitely in the, in the leave vote, there is a sense in which there is a willingness to sacrifice. Now, of course, when put to the test, right? I mean, if the economy starts to tank, then I think that's a different story. But if growth is maybe not as robust as it might have been, then I think that'll be fine, you know. But but this is very much, I would say, a, a non-economically motivated issue. Um, it's not that economics doesn't matter. Of course it does. But I think there's a sense in which, particularly the levers are willing to sacrifice something materially in order to get this. I think it is a very sort of live issue when we talk about things like cost of living, availability of housing, you know, the southeast of England being particularly dense for living and the the natural sort of result of all of the high levels of immigration, people have to live somewhere. They have whether that's sort of building on the green belt that is talked about as from the right that people are saying, you know, we should to no longer protect the green belts, great the need is for housing, and people can say, you know, there's immigration is, you know, what is it, net has been hundreds of thousands, or a quarter of a million a year, trains crowded, the doctors is crowded, now we're going to concrete over the green belt. Well, hang on, actually, if it's my kids, that's different from 
people coming from elsewhere. Yeah. yeah, I mean, just in response to that, one possibility that um, Brexit opens up in terms of Britain's immigration system is to have something more um, regionalised. Now, I'm not saying that's what the government's planning at the moment, but in principle at least, and I know that they do something along these lines, I believe, in, in, in Canada, Eric, um, if you're allowing people in, not on the basis of an unlimited right to freedom of movement, but you know, based on having a, a job offer, mm. then you can tie that to the needs of particular parts of the country. Mm. And indeed, specifically the Scottish government mm. um, have been regularly calling since 2016 mm. for aspects of immigration policy to be devolved because Scotland, unlike London and the South East, is very much not overcrowded mm. and there's a sense of um, unfulfilled economic potential mm. um, because there aren't that many people there and there is a lot of space and, and, mm. and the Scottish government has a more um, open approach to, to encouraging in, in with migration. So, you know, that's something that could be done post-Brexit that, that you couldn't do mm. uh, within the EU. And I don't know how yeah, well you I think mean, that works in Canada. I, I guess my view is it's it's not particularly likely to work in the... Like in Canada, it's well known a joke that, you know, the migrants are sent off to the East Maritime, places like Newfoundland, New Brunswick, etc., which are very few immigrants. And within the space of a few years, they're, they're all in Toronto and Vancouver and Montreal. I mean, I think, but illegally, or they then yeah, they have a certain amount of time they have to stay, or, or or depending on the scheme, right? So they'll only stay as long as they're required to stay. But ultimately, people have free movement within a country, right? So so it's you can't keep people in places they don't want to be against their will in a free country, right? No, no, so, indeed, but you you can, in principle, at least, um, make you know tie their right, people's right to work to which part of the country they live in. When they initially arrive, but once they've arrived, they are, have the full rights of citizens, right? Mm. You, can't, you can't keep them from coming to London. It's not a Chinese situation. No, no, yeah. sure. But it's kind of similar to students who graduate then are in the country legally and may try and get mm. a job somewhere. But in the end, they either have the legal right to, to, to stay and work or, or, or they don't. And that is a matter of domestic law. I'm not specifically advocating mm. this, this model, but I just note that there are options opened mm. up by Brexit. Well, this seems quite a good time to move on to what a moderate policy or policy position more broadly might be on immigration. So I suppose when we've talked about what it is that's underlying all of these things, but I suppose starting with the language. So how can you sort of talk about immigration in such a way that balances the sort of liberal and progressive side with the, some of the concerns that we've talked about? Um, well, that's a question that for a long time I thought I had a pretty good answer to. And the answer was around addressing the kind of practical concerns people had. Um, however, I think some of this conversation, some of the things I've sort of started reflecting on uh, recently, actually suggest there are deeper cultural things as well. So that I think will only work to an extent. One thing I am convinced on, and I think one thing that people have got wrong and politicians have got wrong at times in this debate, is to kind of shout down people's concerns. And I think with this particular issue, um, when I've interacted with people on it, they, they don't trust the government to take them seriously, their concerns seriously, and not to sort of say, oh, it's, it's xenophobia or something. Um, so I think definitely a, a sort of 
a collaborative approach where you're talking to people and listening is probably part of the solution. I'm afraid to the broader question, I don't have the answer. Well, I think that's something that we can sort of maybe try to work through. So um, the balance between control, reduction and economic growth is going to be dancing on the head of a pin, I think it's fair to say. But something that I think maybe doesn't get talked about enough as my own sort of personal interest a little bit is how you have a welfare state. And I think part of the, no small part, I think really, of the concern, public concern about this is that the the NHS, for example, and the welfare state in Britain was in, put in place after the Second World War was one where migration was very low and you had very much a sort of a national system. People have just been through a unifying event of us against another. And so you had this system where you pay in and there's a sense of solidarity. And there is a balance that people on the left pretty much refuse to engage with about whether you can have a comprehensive welfare state without the solidarity that underpins it and therefore whether you can have a big welfare state with high levels of migration that I think too often people don't really talk about. So there's a lot of issues there. So what might a, sort of an immigration system that balances all of these things, what might it consist of, do we think? Well, I think, I guess I come back to this question of nationhood and cultural identity as being ultimately what underpins a lot of the anxieties that are behind the populist revolt in a lot of Western countries. And I, just in some of the research I've done, I mean, I think one of the keys is to to listen to those who who see, who are, say, more conservative in cultural terms. So they want change to be slower. Um, for them, difference is more disorder than it is interesting and stimulating. Whereas, and, and a lot of this is down to psychological traits, which are sort of fifty percent genetic. Actually, you know, so, so some people, in terms of your attitude to new experiences, to stimulation, and so on. So some people are going to want that change. They're going to want the difference all the time, and other people are going to want stability and in order. Um, and I think there's a couple of things. One is, of course, setting a level that. That is, a, that is a compromise, ultimately, between the people who want a higher level and the people who want a, a lower level and meeting whatever that number is. Now, I think the surveys would suggest that number is slightly over 100,000. Now, that's that could be one compromise. Now, the other thing is, I think, the way this is linked to national identity. One, one view is to say, well, to say, well, Britain's getting more and more diverse. Isn't that fantastic? That's and I think that message works really well, again, for that type of person who likes change and difference, which is, and that's fine. The other, however, message might be to say, well, there's immigration, but people are assimilating as they always have, and nothing's really changing very much. It's, it's a bit like the English language, a few new words, but basically the same. Now, now in a, if you do a, a, an experiment where you get people to read this, that interpretation, you know, you could voter will find that quite congenial in the sense that that will reduce some of their anxieties. Um, so the question I think for government is, or, or politicians is, how do they get both of those messages out? So the people who are fine with the diversity message, you can use that message. But I don't think you can have a national identity and, a, and an, an official message, and a message in the culture that is only about diversity and change, or you're going to get more polarization.
and, and the, so I think it's partly also about the way this is narrated in the culture, in the nation, uh, by politicians. So you just talked about yep. compromise there, between the, the compromise between those who want higher levels of immigration and those who want lower levels, more restrictions. Uh, in terms of a balance, it's not been much of a balance over the last 15 years. Right. You know, it's been a quarter of a million plus a year for many of those. And that's net. You know, that is, that is net. So for some people, you know, they're seeing even greater level. You know, the, the growth figure is obviously higher for certain places. That's higher and as a proportion of sort of where they live, certain communities. So do we need to start by actually not talking about sort of legitimate concerns and all of these things that I think people who work in politics are maybe not do through gritted teeth, but it's like ironically going to a foreign land and trying to speak another language. But we need to, first of all, perhaps sort of accept and come to peace with the fact that the people who do want a more restrictive immigration policy have not got what they have wanted for a decade and a half, probably. And we need to sort of level with them and go, you know, that maybe is the, the first compromise is to accept that the compromise so far has not been much of a compromise at all. I think that's right. I mean, that, that would be my view on it, is that, that what's powered the rise of a number of these movements, you know, from the BNP to UKIP to the Brexit Party and all this sort of stuff, is this issue. So I think getting a hold of the, this issue, probably if this issue had been, if the politicians had got a hold of this better, there may not have been a Brexit. You know? so, mm. so, so I think that, and I, that's why I still think this issue is going to, since it was the motive, motive force, I still think it's going to reappear at some point. So you do have to get a hold of it and get it at a level that is, and, and it, the issue will drop off people's agenda if the level is reduced to, to a point people are roughly comfortable with. You're always going to have people who want, say, zero and those who want, open borders. but So yeah, I think you're right. And I think that's why this, uh, this issue is kind of looming. And it's also looming partly because, yeah, I, again, Western societies are becoming more diverse. So more questions are being raised, the who are we questions, mm -hmm. which again, you also have to have an answer to those questions. In order, as It's not just the numbers, but also a question that can deal with the anxieties of, a, of the kind of person who wants the, the present to be like the past. How do you kind of, I think there has to be a story for them, which is, I think, an assimilation story. And then there's a story for the people who like change and difference. Yeah. But how do you see the, 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 the interaction between the cultural change that certainly, you know, a, a lot of people on, say, Brexit or UKIP voters um, side of politics are concerned is, with, is, is, is about immigration from, or what kind of immigration are we talking about? Let me put it this way. I mean, the big change, of course, was the in terms of the numbers, was post-2004 um, expansion to, of the EU to, to Eastern Europe, huge, unexpected, unprecedented influx of white European migrants, um, most of whom I would think within a, a generation or so, to the extent that you know the, those families remain, will have pretty well integrated. Um, and you know, second generation Polish migrants or so. And my children go to school with people <laughs> for, of that background. You know, th there isn't much of a, a, a cultural difference there. Um, isn't the concern people have, as far as cultural change is concerned, not about recent migration, but about 
multi uh, multiculturalism, which 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 goes back a lot a long a long way further. Yeah, that's a really good question. There's a lot of elements in there. I mean, I think that first of all, the non-European numbers generally were as high or higher than the European for most of the period, really up to the Brexit vote, going back ten years, for example. And so, and and the part of the problem here is that you know if you poll even Leave voters and you ask them how many people they'd like to admit from the EU and outside the EU, actually, even there, you find them more willing to admit slightly higher numbers from inside the European Union. So I don't, I actually think both the EU and non-EU numbers were figuring in people's decisions. And you could even see, for example, in the breaking point poster that Farage used and was, was keying into some of these issues. And so I don't think it's just a European migration issue. I think that was the acceptable way to talk about these concerns because these were white people. And I agree with you that certainly their kids will be more or less assimilated into the majority ethnic English population, let's say in England. Um, but but ultimately, you know, I think going forward, um, I'm not sure that the EU, EU or European migration will be the big issue in Britain. I mean, I think the, the, uh, the issues will be more similar to what we see in New Zealand, Australia, Canada, for example, where it's it's perhaps more Asian or perhaps with the Islam issue. I think those sorts of things, if I were to say going forward, so Pew's projections say for Britain, um, if you know Muslim share in 20, in the last census, 2011 was about 6%. So actually quite small, um, but it's gonna be about 17% in 2050, which is still not big. You know, it's not what the alarmists are talking about, but it is a significant increase. And I think these issues, I think we, they, well, that's why I'm talking about the need to have a narrative that tries to minimize this change, first of all. But also, I, I think the immigration issue is not just the numbers, but it's also a symbol, a symbolic issue about the cultural changes occurring in a country. And I think at some level, these symbolic questions need to be addressed and, and there has to be a com an accommodation between, again, the people who want faster change and like change and the people who, who don't like change and something that, so each can understand the other and move towards a, a compromise. I think there is a slightly odd issue that we sort of touched on a little bit that, um, that somehow the issue is that there's just not enough middle class people coming in. The people who work in politics by and large, and especially over the last few years, people in and around politics, which you know, if we spend our evenings talking about <laughs> politics on a podcast, we are in and around politics. We tend to all be middle class, and we look at this and go, well, if they were just more like us, and isn't part of the problem that when the issue of immigration comes up, well, we, we go, it would be fine if they were just more people like us, but that is a a sort of a comfort or a luxury that seems to be not afforded to people lower down the scale. That if they say, hang on, I'm, I'm not happy that there's not many people like us around here. Oh, you're a racist, you're a bigot, you're a xenophobe. But if I, you know, if I can catch it in very sort of moderate policy terms, well, you know, we need to have a higher skilled level of immigration people with more diverse tastes and backgrounds. Oh, of course, well, basically the problem is that there's, the problem in the past has been there's not enough people like me. And it seems like, again, the two people of a shared country talking a different language around this issue. Isn't part of the issue that makes this so vexing, something that we touched on earlier, the traditional left and right 
can't deal with this. We have the, as you said, the, the top Brexiteer Tories, at the top of the Tory party, the um, Britannia Unchained types, the Global Britain types, are for keeping markets open and the sort of you know global movement, sometimes called a sort of Singapore on Thames. While they have on that quite a lot in common with the front bench of the Labour Party, who are similarly sort of very liberal, very open borders. Um, the more the less centrist parts of each party, maybe less with Labour, and we've talked previously about the new heartlands and the new sort of core vote in the Labour Party. The old core vote, or the former core vote, has now gone off to elsewhere and has been going off to elsewhere for some time, it is important to stress. And the sort of that perhaps working class Tory vote. This is not does not fit into a left-right issue because the centre of the Labour and the Tory party more are on the same page on this issue and on several others. And then the less centrist parts of the main parties are also on more on the same page in being more restrictive on immigration. Is this partly why our politics can't deal with it, immigration? Because the left and right structures we've built don't work. Well, I think, I would say in Britain, certainly if you go back to Cameron talking about tens of thousands in May, talking about bringing immigration down to the tens of thousands, the right has been certainly quite comfortable, I think, moving on to this terrain. Now, of course, you, you have that Boris and the, 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 fa the Global Britain faction who are relatively pro-immigration, pro-markets. But really, if you look, again, globally in the West, the, the movement, I mean, that sort of libertarian-style conservatism is very much on the out, and what's replacing it is this more nationalist conservatism. And I don't believe, and, and I think the results of this election in terms of the, the base, I mean, who's voting for the Conservative Party, these um, cons working, working class leave, la labor leavers, is very much similar to what we're seeing elsewhere. And I not this is why I'm skeptical that that, Brexiteer elite can keep it together for forever. I mean, I think right now people are, who voted leave are probably giving them a pass because they're trying to make Brexit work and make it, make it happen. The issue will, will become, once they ink a deal, they're then going to be responsible. First of all, it's never going to be a perfect deal, so they can be attacked on, on that front. But also, then the attackers are going to come out of the woodwork and have more to work on. Um, so I don't think that the left, I think the, the conservative party could certainly get a hold of this issue. And if we look at, at say, uh, Mark Rutte in the Netherlands, or if we look at, at Austria, uh, Sebastian Kurz, uh, you know, a lot of center-right parties have managed to, to move on this issue. I mean, even Macron, fairly, fairly tough on, on, on the border. Um, it's the left that has the much bigger problem in moving conservative on the immigration issue. So the, the right seems to be able to move to the left, or sorry, the conservatives can move left on economics much more easily, as David Goodhart said, than the left can move right on culture. Because the typical median voter in most societies is a bit kind of to the right on culture and a bit left on, on economics. So I do think that it is a, an issue that the right is, is morphing towards. So they're becoming less libertarian, less free market and more culturally conservative, more nationalist. And that's a trend we're seeing all over the West. Um, so I think it's more of a realignment, but it's not necessarily going to 
break up the party system. Of course, the populist right parties have profited from the rise of this issue, but they, it's not as though the existing party system has completely collapsed. The left has declined dramatically in almost every, not every country, but in most countries, the left has never done as, as poorly, the, the main center left, as it's doing now. And I think that reflects precisely this crisis that the they cannot move in a rightward direction on culture. And so they're basically being beaten in that quadrant. Yeah. I was wondering, do you think they have to move in a right direction on culture? Because you, like I said before, you could take an approach where you really address the practical side of immigration. You could take an approach where you say, actually, uh, concerns of migration are actually on the right side of history because they're a response to globalization. You can have a narrative that is more like that. Um, it, do you think that's going to cut it? Or do you have to kind of show you agree with some of the cultural values you've talked about with people who are concerned? Well, okay, so it depends. If you take, say, the Danish Social Democrats, to some extent New Zealand's Labour Party have moved in that conservative direction, I think quite profitably. Uh, now, you might say, okay, we're going to be the party of the liberal cosmopolitans, let's say, or that more kind of globalist, if you like, in the globalist-nationalist uh, divide on the more globalist side. But then you're going to have to win over your well-heeled Lib Dem-type voters. Now, what we, what we seem to be seeing in both the 2016 U.S. election and in the recent election here is that your sort of anti-immigration working class voter who used to vote labor is much more willing to go over to the conservatives than your well-heeled person who wants low tax but is kind of globalist in their cultural social attitudes. Those people don't seem to have gone over to labor or even to the Democrats in the United States in the numbers. Some of them have, but in the same numbers that the white working class anti-immigration voters have gone over to the conservative party. So in that trade, there is a loss for the left. That seems to be what we're seeing. Do we, can this be characterized, as I'm about to characterize it, as the Lisa Nandy dilemma? So we talked last time quite extensively about the Labour leadership. Now, Lisa Nandy has sort of talked about the need to respect the referendum, the result, and to listen to the voices of those who feel that they haven't been listened to, and yet has always found a way to vote against any possible form of Brexit. And so does this not somewhat encapsulate the left's tentative desire nowadays to be seen to be reaching out to these people who have... Um, by good often gone somewhere else, but can't quite bring themselves to actually cast their vote in such a way as would risk upsetting their sort of new core vote, if that's you know, not too sort of, uh, simplistic way of putting it. No, that's a, that's a good way of putting it in a way. I think there are two things going on. I mean, one is the cultural turn of the left in the sense that identity issues, egalitarianism of culture, if you like, has superseded the old class historical materialism, the Marxism, etc., of the past. And so since the 60s, you've had the rise of these, this sort of cultural left, what I call left modernism, has become dominant in intellectual circles. And that's influenced now, it's influenced the Democratic Party in the U.S., influenced the Labour Party here. So that's one issue. And that, of course, doesn't have much appeal to your you know, conservatively minded working class, particularly white working class voter. But then you have a second dimension, which maybe gets into this, the culture war stuff a bit around political correctness. That is, if you have taboos 
around, let us say, the trans issue, which we saw in the Labour Party, that you are a trans, if you don't sign up to these pledges, you are a transphobe. So you really don't want to be one of those because you want to be a progressive. You don't want to be a transphobe, right? So if you then get these taboos, which can be weaponized, um, then even if a view isn't especially popular, even in the Labour Party, even if most politicians in the Labour Party might think, maybe this is not a good idea for us to push this. Maybe we should think about this. Uh, maybe on my mind isn't made up. Well, do you want to be a transphobe? No, I don't, so I better sign up. Right? And so this is, this is partly where I think there is a a throttling um, of some of the left-wing parties because they're imprisoned by, by these weaponized um, norms. And so they're unable to break out towards the, the median voter in the center. Uh, and it's a real problem. I think we see it now in, in the U.S. In the, in the Democratic primaries. I mean, who's willing to challenge something like reparations for slavery or stand up for the police or for border control? They're just not. Now, who knows? Maybe... If Biden gets through in the election, he might be willing to break with that. But it's gonna ha he's going to have to break taboos in order to address that issue where I think the median voter is. And so these questions of, of you know, speech restrictions and pol political correctness are not just a campus thing. I think they actually have real-world effects, and I think this is one of them. All right, um, let's talk culture wars. Okay. <laughs> Steve. What are culture wars? What is this thing that we hear about? I mean, I wish I had a great definition of culture wars. I think if you put on and put it really simply, or if you looked it up in a dictionary, you'll get something like we're talking about a conflict between the values, beliefs, kind of way of life of different cultural groups. That's the kind of probably easy answer. I think in practice, in politics, the thing that has really struck me is that whereas we used to talk a lot about who was a better kind of managerial politician, who had a better plan for the economy, things like that. Now we're talking about totemic cultural things. We talk about Brexit on, the, on this podcast. Immigration is one of these to totemic things. Um, so for me, the meaning is it's a move towards that kind of discourse. Okay. I mean, the thing I was going to add, I think the word totemic is, 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 is quite important in the definition because, I mean, what... There's, there's loads of ways into this, and, and Eric, you've given a few examples already. But I mean, for me, something about something distinctive about the the modern cultural wars and, and cultural style of politics is its disinclination to find compromise. You know, you you talked about oh, what, what were old style. Uh, dominant political issues. I mean, they were often distributed or redistributed questions, um, as well as questions about the right way to manage public services and so on. But there were things where, you know, whatever your starting point, you could have a uh, you could have a negotiation and a debate and, and end up in the middle ground. But on some of these, yeah, totemic um, issues that, for slightly hard to explain reasons, um, have become so central to. To, to modern political debate, you know, there isn't really an obvious middle ground when you know you read through these the the, the, the twelve trans pledges that the Labour leadership contenders or some of them anyway signed up for. Um, the way they are expressed and the way those activist groups push them very much makes the whole politics around it and you're with us or you're against us. It's absolutely a kind of Manichaean, you're on the side of good or evil style politics. And I think you see that, I mean, and yes, Brexit kind of uh, taps into that to some extent, and we've spent some time talking about that. But I think it comes up in 
Um, other, other issues, maybe more so in, in the US, but I fear that we're following the same path as well. But you can see it, the politics of abortion in, in America, which have long been, it's long been a much more politicized issue in America than it has now. But in recent years, you've really seen that start to polarize again um, with you know, a move to, on the left, to take an absolutely unlimited, unrestrictive approach to abortion, you know, right up to um, right up to nine months and so on. And any restriction is seen as anti-women, as misogynistic. And on the right, you are seeing, you know, attempts to, to clamp down on it in some sort of Republican states. Um, very much, you know, there's a desire to, to, to push as far as you can to criminalise it. Whereas before we had a kind of compromise sort of healthy middle ground, you might say, I do think that's the way that, that culture wars drives us towards these very uh, fixed positions on either end of, the, of, of these moral debates. I actually wrote something recently on Lisa Nandy's decision-making around the issue, and we sort of we touched on it, that I think, as you said, her sort of thought process was um, the desire not to be seen to be transphobic, which... Yeah, you know, no one wants to be seen to be, you know, phobic or racist, you know, all of these sort of things. And it's a perfectly legitimate thing. But her, in my mind, decision-making was compromised by her, her desire to um, not be seen to be transphobic or not risk being attacked being transphobic. That came above the desire to make a sort of a thoughtful and considered contribution to the debate. Now, the particular issue was around the accommodation of trans women in um, sort of women's prisons, prisons for biological females, and made a, what could have been offhand comment about, yes, of course, trans women should be accommodated. But actually, when you think that through, it sounds quite expensive to implement a series of, sort of effectively segregation within current prisons. Um, and I just think that that desire not to be sort of attacked in that way, as you say, it is, it is having an effect on our politics and the people are, in my view, rushed into making a commitment to something that they wouldn't have done if they had taken a more thoughtful approach. Um, and also, just to finally add on, the, so Nandy signed the, the pledge which said that people who do not hold this particular view should be expelled from the Labour Party. And then gave an interview in which she said the call for expulsions from the Labour Party gave her pause, which struck me as trying to have your cake and eat it. Right. You want to sign something that says people should be expelled, but you're like, well, I don't really agree with the thing I've just signed, which I think speaks of muddled decision-making. But um, how do we then balance and we're about compromise and moderation and the centigrade. How do we try to come to an accommodation between all of these different factors? I mean, I think that that is really the question of, of our time, is, is we've got an economic center ground. How are we going to get the cultural center ground? That's something I want to approach in my next book. The problem is, so you've had in the past, I think the conservative right side has had more of these taboos, if you like, abortion being one of them, um, and the debate was more religious or religio-cultural. But I think now a lot of these taboos are coming, the newer ones are coming from the left around 
race, gender, sexuality. So that's a post-60s development, but there's been this, um, what one social psychologist called concept creep. So the meaning of terms like harm, offense, racism, sexism, etc., expands and expands and expands, right? So somebody, I use the example of, you know, I think we'd agree that calling somebody the N-word would be racism, but is somebody reading from a 19th century text of somebody else using the N-word as an example of the way things were racism? Well, I think most people would say no. However, if you're, the problem is we've got a small group of moral entrepreneurs who are trying to push the meaning of these terms and expand them so that more and more and more things are seen as offensive. So it's about maximizing the sensitivity of a society, which is in, in many ways, I think, a negative thing. I actually think you want to be going for a more resilient society, which allows you to be more tolerant and to have free speech and so on. But if you are going to interpret more and more and more things as transphobic or sexist, etc., which most people would not see as such, what you're essentially trying to do is police speech and thereby shut down debates. And then, but of course it has these secondary, it's not just the on-campus stuff, which is an important thing, but it has these secondary effects. So for example, if politicians campaigning to reduce immigration is racist, right? Because it might offend somebody. So we've expanded the definition of racism to include discussing immigration in, in a way that would want to reduce it. And that is essentially what was the case in a number of countries prior to the, say, 2015, then the only people who, who can actually discuss immigration reduction are going to be the populace. So what you're doing is, by narrowing the Overton window of acceptable de debate, taking more issues off the political discussion of electoral competition, you open space for the populist. I don't think we'd have the Sweden Democrats. We wouldn't have a Donald Trump if the mainstream parties had not had these taboos uh, around these issues. And haven't yeah. you, in fact, seen and done some work that says it's not often the people who might be thought of as being directly affected who are offended, it's people who are offended on their behalf. So that right. there will be there, the stories of, I don't know, Muslims are offended by Christmas, so no one can say Happy Christmas. And actually the research shows that um, Muslims are not offended by Christmas. It's people who are offended on the behalf of people who say, oh, you know, this is a, ter this is a terrible thing. All of these Muslims are going to be so offended. And actually, most of them are like, no, it's fine. You do your thing, we do ours. You know, live and let live. But I mean, yeah, a lot of the attempts to survey minority populations show exactly what you said. That you know, And a great one is this term Latinx, which is the politically mm. correct term for Latino. And I think it... Only, you know, I think 98% of Hispanics don't identify with that term at all. So it's essentially been constructed in Ivy League universities and imposed as a speech code, right? Mm -hmm. so, so that is an example of, of this um, phenomenon whereby you have this moral uh, entrepreneurialism. And that then invites a blowback. So, I mean, for Trump, his number two, I mean, if you look at the primaries after immigration, political correctness was his, his second issue. So um, it's definitely having these these blowback effects. Um, and yeah, I think that it's not, the, the political correctness issue is not as big an issue in Britain as it, as it is in the United States. So I'm not pretending that it's the same, got the same electoral currency, but um, definitely what you say. Be seems careful to what you wish for. No, oh, yeah. <laughs> but let, so let's just talk a little bit more about America and the US. We've touched on it a little bit. Does Biden's success mean that 
Maybe there's just a little bit of resurgence <laughs> of the middle ground. Maybe all hope is not as lost as we might sound like it is sometimes. Well, I think this is um, depends partly on whether you're talking about the country or the different parties. So uh, you're comparing, from my understanding, the Democratic Party in the States to Labour Party in the UK. Uh, Labour has been more captured by the left and the broader left movement and sort of entryism we talk about, I think, than the Democratic Party has in the US. That might be something to do with the fact that party membership systems are completely different in the States where you don't really have a membership system where you pay, you just register as a Democrat or Republican or Independent. Um, so I wonder whether the Democratic Party ever was as left as Labour Party is, so how far it's gone back to Biden. Certainly he's done well, but Sanders is also doing very well. Um, the bigger question perhaps, and it goes a bit to something we're talking about, is are these problems of sort of, um, sort of hard left work activists or entrepreneurs, as you call them, Eric, is that something that's just really uh, impactful in the political parties and in political communities who are very engaged, or is it something that's actually affecting the rest of society? And um, I couldn't tell you, I don't think, uh, where the broader consensus is in American centrism. Yeah, I mean, uh, just in response to, to, to your comparison there of Labour and, and, and the Democrat uh, Party in the States, I think this, which one has gone further left? I mean, doesn't this, doesn't this go back to the question of the difference between economic and um, cultural left? I mean, I think, as, as Eric was saying, you know, the sort of politically correct culture has, has taken root much more strongly in America. I think you could argue that Labour here has been more captured by the economic left, or certainly it was under Corbyn. We'll see with the Labour leadership where, where we end up now. But the Democrats seem to seemed at least until recently to have been quite quite ca- captured by the the cultural left. Maybe Biden does represent a bit of a, a strike back from the the moderate central centre ground, though. Yeah, I mean, I would I think I would agree with you in the sense that I don't think the Labour Party is as yet as politically correct as uh, the Democrats are. For example, I mean, even though of course some of what I mean this trans thing with. Uh, labor, their inability to talk about immigration in any way other than a positive way, I think is are straws in the wind of the kind of things we see in America. But no, we don't see, repar- you know, you, not being against reparations for slavery and, 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 you know, a character like Beto O'Rourke or Elizabeth Warren doesn't seem to exist here to quite that extent. So I, I think I, I still think it is a, a stronger issue in America. But I think the Biden thing is is very much coming out of the African-American support. So the African-American is, is a voter is a very significant part of the Democratic coalition, and, and they also have high voting turnout. But they're also the most conservative part of the Democrat base. Mm. Socially conservative. Yeah. Socially conservative, probably the least politically correct part of the mm. Democrat base. So they're the ones who are keeping Biden's number. They're the ones who gave him a boost. Whereas a lot of the commentariat were actually really very disappointed that um, particularly Warren wasn't nominated, uh, you know, but I think it's, so I, it, it does, sh- I guess some of the kind of Hispanic and black support for the Democrats is what's keeping the party more to the center, I would argue. Mm. Um, whereas it's interesting here where uh, it's a slightly different coalition. I mean, I guess there still is a centrist element in the Labour Party, but it's, the party is more under under the control of of that left wing and quite culturally left element. Whereas in the US, because of the primary system, you know, the centrists have their candidate and the uh, the left has their candidate and they kind of battle it out. Who's to say who's gonna win? I, I don't know. 
How does this play though with this distinction between the kind of the politically engaged commentariat and the voters at large? Because again, with you mentioned African American voters are perhaps not as sort of liberal as or sort of woke, you might call it, as some of the other uh, sort of white voters who vote Democrat in the states. Um, but equally, equally, um, Bernie Sanders, one of his sort of roots to power is supposed to be winning over white working class voters, who I uh, would imagine are also not quite signed up to this identity politics stuff. So. Is it a case of just that the parties are always more extreme in their views, including on some of these cultural things, than the public? Uh, or are there are other groups definitely also moving in that kind of woke direction? Or do the left, as we've seen, certainly in this country, and arguably have seen with Sanders in the primaries, do the left feel that Basically, do they effectively take the white working class for granted and just assume that because they're left wing, everyone else will come out and support them because they're so wonderful? Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at Bernie's support, I mean, he first of all, Bernie has changed. He has experienced the pressure from this political correctness in the Democratic Party and has shifted his views, for example, on immigration, whereas he, he said, you know, open. he told Ezra Klein in that famous interview, open borders is a Koch brothers proposal. It's a right wing thing. And now he's you know, essentially not not willing to talk about border security or, or any immigration issues. And I think if you look at his base, it is a kind of young, college educated, yes, mainly, but it's that white, young kind of lefty group. It's not really uh, the more conservative groups. And yes, you know, they say he has some appeal to white working class voters, but that remains to be tested. It's not, it's not clear, um, but yeah. So just to, to finish, Akash, We've kind of had a bit of a thread running through these discussions, which is that politics has never felt so polarised. But given some of the things that we've talked about, have we turned a bit of a corner? Is the centrist empire striking back? I think I started this conversation a bit more optimistic than than I than I now feel. Maybe having listened to to, to, <laughs> to all three of you, maybe particularly Eric, um, on this subject, but. Yeah, I mean, I do think that both in, in, in the UK and, um, and in America, on the cultural questions where we've seen this, this polarisation that we've been talking about, I do think there is a kind of sensible middle ground position shared by the majority of voters. And there's been, it's, it's been a slightly strange phenomenon to watch and it maybe hasn't played out yet. I'm sure, I'm, sure, I'm sure it hasn't. But the way that commentators on Twitter and um, certain um, sort of elite institutions have managed to kind of create this discourse around, for example, as we're talking about the sort of trans issue um, and, and create these taboos that I just don't think are shared by the majority of people. And I, I just don't think it can hold in the long run. You know, we may not have quite turned the corner on it, but um, I think, yeah, I mean, I do see the, the, the Joe Biden um, victory on, on, on Super Tuesday in particular as, a, as, as, as reflecting um, the, the kind of moderate majority um, in the US among Democrat voters. Um, Keir Starmer, of course, is likely to win the Labour leadership. We haven't talked about that so much today, but I think you could argue he, he represents uh, the, the moderate position within Labour as well. Um, and on Brexit, which of course has been the cause of such polarisation 
um, I do have some kind of maybe naive optimism that we will move past this period and uh, gradually come back together again in, in, as a country um, and find never perfect but kind of acceptable compromises on some of these tricky issues. Um, it won't all happen overnight, but I hope that's where we'll end up. Great. Uh, well, I, yeah, I, I think you're right, and I. I th but the, my worry, I do think that this sacralization of identity has a lot behind it intellectually, and has a lot of cultural force, not only in academia but in in Hollywood and and so on. And I think it's not clear that we've seen the high tide of it, and there is a lot of manufacturing of of offense and social construction of things like racism, transphobia, and so on. It's somebody, there has to be, I think, some kind of an intellectual revolution that would say, actually, we need to define these terms in the way that most ordinary people understand them, not in, in some synthetic way. And that's what you're trying to do, isn't it? <laughs> I hope so, yeah. <laughs> Plug. Right. Thank you very much, Steve. Thank, Thank you very much. Uh, um, Akash, thank, thank you very you. much. Eric, it's been absolutely Thanks. fascinating. I've enjoyed being a part of it. So I hope of all of our listeners out there, hopefully plural, I hope you have enjoyed it as well. Um, thank you very much for joining us. If you have enjoyed this, please do share this um, far and wide. And we hope very much to see you again the next time. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.